Hey, I'm Will Laviste. He's Eric Laville. You're tuning into Laviste and Claville, where we tell it to you straight the way it is, from a black male's perspective. Because it's like that, and that's the way it is. So let's get right to it. This show, we continue in our series on the black tax, and this is a black tax, you know, black business owners, black tax and black businesses. So, you know, it's often said that when white America catches a cold, black America catches the flu. Well, this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the shutdown of the economy has raised all kinds of issues in society about the uh, disparities that exist and has definitely exacerbated the challenges that black business owners face. So depending on the source, you know, in 2020, there was about 1 million to 2 million black businesses, depends on what source that you use, right? And we pulled some some research and found, for example, a study, California, University of California, Santa Cruz reported that in February 2020, there were about a million black owned businesses nationally, right? Yeah. About six weeks later after the pandemic hit, that number dropped to about 440,000 businesses they saved. So a 40% reduction. Uh, Many of those businesses shut down for good. Meanwhile, the reduction among white-owned businesses was about 17%. So you got 41% versus 17% according to the study. So nearly 4 million minority-owned businesses whose annual sales are totaled around 700 billion shut down because of COVID-19. And then also, you know, a survey by H&R Block, let's see what that said was, there was about 3,000 small businesses, 53% of black business operators saw their revenues cut in half right. wow. in the pandemic. So, you know, I'm blessed to be um, employed and have an employer, but I'm also a black business owner as I've had a consultant firm for mm-hmm. several years now. And I can absolutely tell you that my revenue for my firm it's dried up very much because the reason why, even though I'm employed, I've had a business because multiple revenue streams, as you know, Claville, is key to building wealth in this country and really being able to um, being able to, in a lot of ways, secure yourself from the ebbs and flows that whether it's getting fired by your employer, which I've experienced, or what many black business owners are experiencing. So. Absolutely. These are the kind of, you know, major, major numbers that have hit because of this pandemic. But also there's still a lot of hope that is still as a result of this. For example, the the heightened awareness that has come as a result of what happened, the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. Awareness of, of injustices within the United States based on race as well as throughout the world has in a lot of ways also drawn attention to black businesses. And so they are black business owners that are reporting, hey, that they're getting some better businesses and more and more uh, broader consumers are looking at their businesses because of this heightened awareness of the disparity. So absolutely, there's, there's pluses and there's minuses, but there's definitely a black tax to being a black business owner. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this is uh, one of the most important uh, black tax series that we're doing. All of them are very important. Mm-hmm. But as it relates to black business and the black tax, this is this is a very, very important piece because we're living in the United States of America where Absolutely. people actually leave their homelands 
where they have generations and centuries of their their lineage and their name attached to to come to America in order to find their wealth, in order right. to create their land own. of opportunity. Land of opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, the great thing about America is you can own property. You know, you can own and create things, own a business. You know, there are many great stories about it, but we know from our history that African-Americans have uh, had the short end of the stick on a lot of opportunities through law and public policy and also through historical discrimination and systematic or systemic racism and so forth. And this this still exists today. Now, when you take a look at opportunities for African-Americans, keep in mind, we just looked at 100-year commemoration of the Tulsa Massacre. We've got others coming up, Rosewood, Florida, and many others in between that took place. Uh, but there was generational wealth that African-Americans had by owning their own businesses that was wiped away. Absolutely. Integration also, integration was good. It was great. But it was also bad for African-American businesses because they did not receive the same support right. uh, white businesses received in order to continue or expand their operations. So that also cut off the opportunity for generational wealth. And then after the civil rights legislation that was created, then that's when African-Americans really had an opportunity to seek out um, support, financial support through financing, opportunities through education and the like under the protection of the law. Now, you still got to put out a great product, and many African-Americans and the businesses do that no matter what color or ethnicity. Absolutely. That's, Absolutely. Just, that's just a principle of business. Right. But, but we find where African-Americans have a harder time in face discrimination more so than others. As a matter of fact, when you take a look, uh, I'm, I'm looking at, you mentioned uh, several uh, studies that you took a look at or articles. I'm looking at a, at a resource from Fundera.com regarding mm-hmm. black the state of Black-owned businesses or the statistics of it. You know, and it showed that in 2020, at the end of 2020, 58% of Black business owners said that their businesses' financial health is, quote, at risk, unquote, mm-hmm. or, quote, distress, unquote, during the COVID-19 pandemic. 58% will. It, if Black businesses are a, a population of people, meaning... Uh, a group of people, which they are, but there's business, but a group of people, and 58% said that their financial status was at risk or distress, you know, that's that's basically... That's that's an absolute crisis. I mean, that's you're talking about, think about all of the chain reaction that comes from that. So 58% of business owners, how are the folks providing for their families? So you're looking at the possibility of homes going under. So now... Not only the business is gone, but the place where you are raising your family, your your other asset that you put so much into is now at risk. And a lot of black businesses, because of, for example, the, the challenges of getting access to capital, the challenges of being able to get loans, a lot of these entrepreneurs put everything, all of their assets into these businesses. So a lot of them raided their 401ks to start these businesses or took out second mortgages on their homes. So like you said, if you're looking at a crisis, man, where half of, you know, 58% is more than half of the businesses, there's a chain reaction that's going to come from that. Absolutely. Now, it's funny you mention that because the chain reaction, that was a good point because we don't think about it. We think about the business owner. 
But we don't think about the impact of that business shutting down. Because a lot of businesses are still brick and mortar, right? I know that right. we, you know, a lot of businesses that operate online right. and the like, but a lot of our businesses or service industry type businesses, whether it be, you know, again, not so much food service and walk-in or restaurants, but also consulting, CPA right. firms, tax firms, right. law firms, insurance firms, and so forth. People want to see you. They want to shake your hand. They want to know right. who is this person that I'm entrusting, uh, that I'm giving my, uh, entrusting with their fiduciary duty with. So when we talk about the impact of Black businesses in financial distress and shutting down, which, again, I marvel at that, 58%. Well, let's just say 60 Because some people may have said, hey, we've been through this. We can get out of it. So they really didn't probably answer that question fully. But 60%, 6 out of 10 Black businesses said we are distressed. Yeah. That is serious. Now, from another stat under this uh, Fundera.com resource, it showed that Black businesses, by the end of 2020, they employed approximately 920,000 people. So let's just say a million people. Right. So, Will, if six out of 10 businesses are financially at risk, hmm. are distressed, which means if you're distressed, that means you're you're pretty much on your last option, your string, your financing. You're waiting for something to come through to dig you out. Right. That means that now it's possible that 600,000, and let's just say half of that number, 300,000 people are out of a job. Right. right. And if, reaction. Business, if the average business employs, according to this study, six to 10 employees, right, or, or less, then that means that out of, let's just say 10, 10 employees, right? If they employ 10, 10 employees, that means that now you have a at least 30,000 buildings that are closing. So now your real estate market becomes in uh, uh, increased because uh, of this glut of property that's on it. So this build, this street or strip that used to have all these businesses, right. but they take down the marquee, right? So you see right. all these spaces, dilapidation, abandonment. And when you see a dilapidation and abandonment, then you see elements that come into the community that you probably don't want in the community. Now, here you go crime. So now, <laughs> now, now you start looking at crime, right? You said what the elements like you start, you, you talked about. So you look at the, the underground economy, you know, drugs, other ways of people trying to survive and trying to care for themselves start coming into play. Yeah. So you got crime, now you got dilapidation, you got crime, you got people who have means looking at, I can't continue to stay in this environment and watch my asset uh, depreciate in its value, so I'm going to move out. So now you get some of those foundational people in the community that help to keep a community strong, looking for other alternatives because they're concerned about their family, the well-being of their children. It, then it starts affecting schools. Again, how are schools financed? Is schools are financed based on you know tax revenue yep. from Absolutely. housing, from businesses, so forth, in a community. So it just leads to this chain reaction that again disadvantages the communities where a lot of a lot of us find ourselves. And then on top of that, the victim begun, begins to get blamed for the condition in which we find ourselves. 
So this is where the need for a government, which is the the only other asset or resource out there other than the you know the banking you know economy that can put a, a major influx of money to you know to try to, to to try to restore or reverse this trend. Then we find out right that a lot of the so this is where the PPP money and all of these other funds mm-hmm. coming in the stimulus just try to 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 stir the downward trend but then we start hearing about how black businesses weren't getting a lot of these funds at the level that they should have been getting these funds so why was that well a lot of the ppp money was tied to having to have a relationship with a bank right so so now you didn't have a relationship with a bank because of, of difficulties, because banks claiming that you are a bad investment, then you found ways of getting money and other other methods that did not necessarily put you in a relationship with a bank. Now the government is using this program to get access to people supposedly who need the money, but you need to have a relationship with a bank. So you can see how this system and how things are interconnected, again, create a situation where black and brown businesses become, you know, disadvantaged and it just, and then it can just snowball and snowball. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you, you mentioned financing and you mentioned funding and relationship with banks. You know, I'm looking at the study as well from Prandera where, where it talks about how black businesses actually get their money, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of times individuals end up funding their own businesses out of their own cash flow. Right. Now, that's not the way that you become wealthy. Now, of course, you know, sometimes it gets started, you have one product and so forth. But I think Shark Tank has showed us, the show that comes on, uh, mm-hmm. that you don't use your own money to expand. You use somebody right. else's money. Right. So most, uh, a lot of black businesses actually utilize their own cash flow. As a matter of fact, 44% of black businesses don't use their own cash flow to start their own venture. You know, so that 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 area of cap capital venturelist has we COVID has brought out how it has it has its problems with being cl- a closed group, right. uh, meaning that African Americans and women have a hard time accessing that group. So therefore, you don't have a. There's a lot of great ideas out there. I have a lot of people that come to me with great ideas, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't have they don't know where to go. They don't have access right. to money, or they can't get through the door. And when we talk about talk about relationship with banks, a lot of matter of fact, it says that 40, 38%, 37.9% of black business owners say they are discouraged from applying for loans. And they receive less business financing less often at higher rates. Right. So if so you have three strikes against you. Start out, out the gate. Number one. You can't get a loan because you're discouraged from applying for one. If you do get a loan, the rate is so astronomically high that there's no margin for error. And third, if if you can't access financing, don't have a relationship with a bank, or can't get to a venture capitalist, you got to fund it yourself, which now leaves the margin for error very small. So, <laughs> you know, so basically, your your tax. I mean, we both had to take a collective just sigh. Because we both know, <laughs> look, we both know it very well, you know that it's 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 hard to get that startup and the margin of error. And l- let's just say we we're fortunate enough to get a good contract, or we're fortunate enough to get, you know, a good case settlement. You right. know, 
you got to manage that. I mean, it, it, Absolutely. it's time for celebration, but the celebration stops within 24 hours because now you have to have a plan before that check clears to expand, to, to, to market, to advertise, and to put six to nine months, if not even 12 months of expenses up before you can even move forward to anything else. Right. And I, and I think that that is, when we talk about black tax, <laughs> in so many ways, you hit the nail right on the head about this issue of margin of error. Yeah. It's like you have to, you, you're constantly um, keeping the lights on. You're constantly on a hustle. You're constantly, and, and let's be honest, I mean, being in business already is stressful. Yeah, you're taking a risk. It already is taking a risk. But when you're in a situation where you're, like you said, your margins for error are so slim, it just adds an additional level of stress onto you that, again, can actually even affect your decision making. You know, when, you, when you're looking at it, it's like you don't get the ability to be able to breathe and do research and development. Absolutely. To be able to look, to be able to forecast down the road and see where trends are going and where you may want to be. If you're so focused on the here and now all of the time and just going from one moment to the next moment to the next. And these are the kinds of pressures that, again, just being a small business owner or being a business owner, even if you, you're, you're running a large corporation, there are challenges to staying competitive, staying on top yeah. of the market. But when that margin of error is so slim, it prevents you from doing these other things that are also important to keeping your business solvent, to keeping your business relevant, to being able to, you know, to really grow your business. You need time to be able to breathe. You need time to be able to think. You need time to be able to, to plan. And these are the kinds of challenges that oftentimes are, are heaped upon Black business owners, Black and brown business owners, that are challenges that others are just not facing to the same degree, you know? And, you know, it's something about that entrepreneurial spirit. You've got to be able to keep your mind focused on this right. tomorrow's going to be a better day. Yes, I can make this move and I can make this gamble and still succeed. Or you got to be able to still be able to, to, to learn from your mistakes and come back and keep going. But when that margin of error is so slim, it just makes it really difficult to be able to do that kind of intellectual, that kind of thinking. That's also critical to really uh, building your business. And and then, Will, you also have to get past perception, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that the Black Lives Matter movement and social justice movement of 2020 showed us is that, you know, discrimination and inequities and inequalities go beyond social issues. Mm -hmm. It was also economic. Uh, black businesses, uh, black business owners, black businesses um, are discriminated against and disadvantaged in many ways that are seen and unseen uh, than their white counterparts. Uh, as a matter of fact, we could talk about the red line effect, mm-hmm. you know, where you may have a great business, but you were forced to operate only. Now, again, I say only. Right. And a marginalized or a black community or poor community. Now, of course, you want to have a presence there because major businesses have a presence there. You may go into a depressed community, but there's a Walgreens there. 
You may go into a depressed community, but there's a chain grocery store there. Right. You may go to a depressed community, but there's a chain fast food restaurant there or a chain gas station. And, and, the, and the list goes on and on. So it's not that you don't want to operate there, but you want to be able to expand outside of those margins. Well, you've got pressure and discouragement and outright discrimination by realtors. They won't show you property in the area or they won't lease to you. Right. At colleagues that have faced discrimination in that in, in, in that uh, uh, realm. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the starters of the great black magazines in Chicago talked about how he dressed up as the janitor. <laughs> you talk about Mr. Johnson, John Johnson. Absolutely. <laughs> used to met him. Used to, uh, I remember meeting him in the elevator in the, in the in the building in the Ebony Building, which is no longer you know, owned by the family. And, um, you know, and I did a stint at Ebony. And you're absolutely right. He had to have a a front man. He got, he got a white, a, front man. a white guy to actually uh, do the deal, close the deal to get that building. Yeah. As a matter because if they knew it was him, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> no deal was coming to the table. So he dressed up as a janitor. Uh, and the his white counter, his white colleague said, oh, I'm bringing the janitorial service to make sure they can clean it. Yeah. You know, so he he gave him an opportunity to look in every room and do certain things. Um, also, now, again, that's perception, but that's yeah. perception from the realtor standpoint. But then you have discrimination from the lender standpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll give a personal story. I remember I was seeking uh, funding to purchase a piece of property and we, at I had an over 700 credit score. All right. Mm-hmm. I had I submitted tax records where I was questioned about how did I get, you know, my my business, you know, this money, where did this come from? I was like, what do you mean it came from? You know, it, it outlines itself. But I was denied from that particular lender. Really? You know, of course, we had other lenders there, but I remember that particular lender denied me the opportunity to get financed to purchase that piece of property. But, you know, again, we were able to get it. The other lenders were more than willing to lend us the money. But I just remember that. I remember that. And I remember the the, the, the white uh, lender and how he started to handle me in the very beginning. But I believe when he found out my ethnicity, he started handling me a little differently. From that. Yeah, this this suspicion, this additional this additional questioning hurdle that you had to cross. And, right. You know, but but the the thing is, the because we don't want to all paint a total uh, doom and gloom. Because you said something earlier that was key about um, the impact of integration and how that had some negative impacts on Absolutely. business. One of the things, as I said at the top, that has also happened is as a result of what is going on with the murder of George Floyd and this heightened awareness, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it's actually is globally, is that there has been this understanding that discrimination, systemic racism is real. And so there's, we're showing some instances, like for example, uh, the website Yelp uh, reports that actually there's been a increase in searches uh, for uh, black businesses. It said increased researches of black businesses on Yelp from February, 2020 to February, uh, 2021, actually jumped uh, three, almost 4%. So as showing that there's this interest, okay, let me find ways to support uh, black businesses. 
And there are a lot of businesses that actually Black-owned businesses that produce, as you said, quality products that are of interest to people outside of the Black community. And that's one of the things that me personally, that I've seen that as a result of desegregation, right, you can't, we don't want to go back to segregation. Segregation, when you really look at some of the numbers that existed in terms of wealth for these communities, the Black communities in many ways were still very poor compared to their white counterparts. So what was happening is that because of segregation, the the economy, the, the money in the Black community circulated many more times, which is what the great thing was. But there was these limits to what Black people were able to do outside of their community. So as desegregation has given us broader access to the wider market, the international market, I think that what's critical is to make that transition of producing products, producing Mm -hmm. services that are of interest, not just to Black community, but to broader communities. And we see instances of that. We see other groups doing that in our communities. For example, you see, for example, you go into a Black community, you see Chinese food restaurants all over the place. So there's a group that's coming outside the community that's producing a product from its own culture that people in the Black community have an interest in, right? You see, for example, hair care products, right? A lot of these stores not owned and run by people from the Black community, people outside the community, but their products that that have an interest for Black people, have an interest for a group outside of their own main community. I look at, for example, I think of a key example of that is hip-hop, music, and culture. Now, here's something that's out of the Black community, out of the Black experience, but is marketed and has interest and has financed and supported, let's be honest, very much so by people who are outside of the community. So I think taking that concept, that idea of producing products that have a broader interest, that have a broader, that you can you can market to a broader community, is a way to go. I look at, for example, Facebook. Facebook, not Black-owned by any means, but they have a product that's very much used by Black people, by, by people of all kinds of different shapes and backgrounds. So I think one of the things that we could be looking at as entrepreneurs, as Black business people, is how do you create products that it may be rooted in our culture, and that's great, that's fine, but that also has an interest that can find a consumer base outside of your immediate community because we have access to the broader uh, international market and national market that we've never had at any other time in the history of the country. Absolutely. And, Will, you hit the nail on the head. You know, creating, it goes back to operating outside of the red line community, traditional red line community. Right. Right. When it comes to, I, I listen, I've said it on many, many of our, our shows. I say it during lectures and so forth. I believe that there's nothing more American than being African-American. Mm-hmm. I believe that so much of African, African-American culture, popular culture, food, dance, music, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we carry ourselves is American culture with an acceptable face, right? right. So with that being the case, you know, just marketing and creating a product of our culture, 
outside of our community. And I'm not just speaking outside of our communities within America. I believe that African-American culture can be reproduced and packaged in a product that is retail through food, music, and the like, and, and, and other products in other countries. Right. When we talk about hip hop, you know, there is no other form of music that every country has adopted. Hip hop. I, I, I was listening to a, 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 a documentary uh, where they were, they were highlighting hip hop groups in Morocco, in Iran, in Iceland. Of course, we, we know about the, the movement in Asia and the like. Hip hop groups. I, and look, I, I was looking at a documentary, Will, where they were going through South Africa, and I, it was actually a story about the time of Nelson Mandela and so forth. That's right. And they went through a shanty town. And they, I saw the words Tupac and Biggie, and I said, "Wait a minute, did I That's just right. Tupac and Biggie?" And That's I, right. You, you know, I've told the story. You know, I've told the story to you. I think I've told it here about being in Mongolia. I was in, I was in Mongolia, walking down the street in the city of uh, Ulaanbaatar in, in Mongolia, and I heard hip hop. Heard, heard Biggie. Guys jumped out the car and was like. Biggie, Biggie, and took a, wanted to take a picture with me. And, and here, I'm a guy from Brooklyn and all places, Mongolia, right. <laughs> and where, where Biggie is from, and they're taking a picture from. So you're absolutely right. That's absolutely, you know, what I'm talking about. Something that's out of our culture, absolutely. but has interest in, in a market, you know, across the world and outside of the culture. And the key is us owning it. You know, it's not it. just, just turning it over to someone else to go and market and own but us owning it and being able to market it and being able to generate the wealth from it. And I think that's the next step, ownership, documenting. There are so many stories of African-American ingenuity, innovation uh, that was taken during the time of slavery, Jim Crow, and not allowed to be marketed and, and utilized for generational wealth. Think about all the inventions during the time of the agricultural movement, uh, during the time of the cotton gin and others that we could have marketed. You know, and many stories that we hear of African-Americans creating recipes. Uh, I think Jack was a Jack Daniels. The family finally gave or, or the company finally gave uh, right. credit to the African-American male that actually, quote unquote, helped to mm. uh, create this process. You know, there's also, you know, big uh, uh, was it? Uncle Nearest, you know, you know, there, right. There, right. Uh, discussion regarding, you know, the inventor of the. Uh, creator of the spice of Popeye's chicken, and that was a big litigation mm -hmm. in the life. So there's many of those stories, Will, but I also think about education-wise. George Washington Carver. Mm -hmm. Before him, there was no peanut butter. If he would have just patented one, and I think it was like over 200 uh, applications for the peanut that he created wow. in his lab. If he would just patented one, where would Tuskegee be? Hmm. Just one. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. Just one, Will. Right. right. So, so again, like you said, there's not all doom and gloom, but I see we see opportunity. But we got to look at what's real. We got to look at the facts. We got to look at the history and move toward what's better. But again, this is like I said, this was a very important discussion. Probably one of the most important when we talk about the Black Tax series. We're going to continue our discussion on the Black Tax here on Levi Saint Clavel. Those of you that are watching us, thank you so much for tuning in to this segment uh, where we talk about black tax and business. Continue to like us, follow us, and share on our social media on Facebook, and let us know how we're doing. And if you have any questions, send those as well. Until next time, 
that's the way we see it. That's the way it is. Be well.